0: of a theology is called Arminianism. Uh, It began with uh, Jacobus Arminius. Uh, He was a Dutch reformed theologian who lived during the late 16th century. As a theologian, he found himself at odds with the, uh, the Calvinist teachings of his church. In particular, he took issue over the teachings on predestination, sovereignty, and eternal security. Uh, Arminius believed that election was determined by man's response to God's uh, universal offer of salvation. In other words, God looked through time and saw which of us would trust in his son of, for salvation. He then elected the ones he would, knew would eventually choose him. Um, and since election hinged on man's response to uh, God, uh, that God offered, the, uh, he took it and ended, ended up taking it too far. And as he took it too far, he concluded that uh, one could then lose his elect status by later rejecting that offer. So he could lose his salvation. And consequently, there was no assurance of ultimate salvation then. Uh, Today, uh, 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 since the day of Arminius, many uh, revered theologians and preachers, not the least of which was John Wesley, um, have held this view. And today, the basic tenets of Arminianism are taught in Cumberland, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, Free Will Baptist, Missionary Baptist, General Association of General Baptists. I always wondered about that terminology, General Association. But anyways, um, Assembly of God, uh, most Pentecostal churches, uh, Foursquare Churches, Nazarene Churches, Wesleyan Churches, and many uh, of the different churches uh, comprising the Christian Holiness Association, as well as Mennonites. So a large group of people would consider themselves Arminian Uh, But modern Arminianism does fall in the realm of evangelical churches. That is, generally speaking, Arminians Arminians, uh, defend the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the infallibility of scriptures. But as is the case with most doctrinal systems, uh, there are differences among the persons who would be considered Arminian in their theology. Uh, There seems to be two major schools of thought among those who believe salvation can be lost. Uh, The first one uh, we'll title, Abandoning the Faith. Uh, Simply stated, uh, a genuine born-again believer can lose his or her salvation by turning away from the Christian faith. For example, no longer believing or trusting in Christ. Uh, The classic passage that's used to defend this view is found in the sixth chapter of Hebrews where it says, uh, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and had tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame." Uh, so that, that, that verse taken out of context, we'll say, well, okay, maybe they're right. <laughs> it sounds like what, that's what they're saying. But you have to take Scripture in all of context. You have to compare all Scripture with all Scripture in order to get a true view of what God is teaching us. And for the proponents of this view, the issue is a matter of faith rather than faithfulness. Okay? They believe there's room for a tempor- temporary moral or ethical failure. Uh, sin not necessi- uh, sin is not necessarily a sign of a loss of salvation. Uh, but if they deliberately turn away from the church or Christ, uh, then they have stepped out of the kingdom of God and back into condemnation. And the potential for losing salvation lies not only with those who have a rebellious heart toward God, but to those who are innocently led astray by false doctrines as well. Like, for instance, those in the book of Galatians, uh, where it said in verse 6, I marvel, as we read, um, I Chapter 1, verse 6, sorry. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Uh, Later in Galatians, in chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Uh, Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Again, those verses out of context sound bad for the theology of eternal security. Uh, But again, they're out of context of the whole of the book of Galatians as well as the whole of the word of God. Uh, they didn't uh these here uh, described here they didn't fall into sin and lose their salvation is what they try to say Uh, but they fell into a false gospel and so that that idea of falling from grace is kind of that one view of arminianism the other view is an everyday falling away Uh, this is if you sin uh, too much then you'll lose your salvation Uh, most of the people that i've talked to that does not believe in eternal security They're unclear about exactly how or when someone loses their salvation. Uh, By that I mean they are not sure what it actually takes to lose it. Uh, They're just sure that you can. (laughs) Uh, As one fellow put it, I know God is merciful, but he's not a fool. Well, I'm glad that you don't think so. But uh, we have to take what God says about God and believe that. Amen. Uh, In other words, there must come a point when God says enough is enough, right? Right. Uh, Well, for most, if not all, proponents of this view, uh, that point is very elusive and undefined. Uh, When pressed about when actual salvation is lost, they can't give an answer. Uh, They may try to philosophize about it, but no clear answer is given. And whereas the first group would reserve the loss of salvation for those who have clearly turned their backs on Christian faith as a whole, uh, the focus of the second group is the lifestyle or behavior of the believers. And they see things like eternal security just doesn't make sense. And the line of reasoning typically goes something like this. By the way, this is a very human line of reasoning, not a uh, biblical line of reasoning. Uh, but they'll use the Bible uh, to try to prove their point. Uh, they'll start with well, God is holy. And demands holiness from his children you're right he does in fact first Peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 says as obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance don't go back to sin that you were saved from in other words but as he which hath called you is holy so be holy in all manner of conversation that's a tall order isn't it it is And verse 16 says because it is written be holy for I am holy so they're right God is a holy God and demands holiness from his children. A second step in the, in the logical thinking they have is God is merciful and a forgiving God. I agree 100%. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. I agree. We're, we're right along the lines here. I still agree. And the third step in their logical thinking is at some point in the life of a disobedient Christian, God's mercy runs out and his holiness takes over. Now, they may not word it exactly like that, but the words that they use do mean that. Uh, But the word of God says in Psalm 107 and one and in many other places in the Bible, by the way, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. Read this with me. For his mercy endureth forever. What does forever mean? forever. Amen. His mercy endureth forever. Our salvation does not depend upon what I have done. Therefore, my lack of salvation cannot depend upon anything I've done. Amen. It depends on what God has done. And then the step four in this logical trail is at that point, God deals with his child totally from the standpoint of his demand for holiness and obedience. Uh, but, however, the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We have, uh, we have the flesh that w- within us, but we also have a quickened spirit, a spirit that has been made alive again. And that's what that verse is talking about. Uh, then the next step that they take is, this may result in the placing a person back outside the circle of acceptance. And John six thirty seven says, all that the father giveth me shall come to me. And in him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And the first, the sixth step, the last step that they say, after all, God cannot accept what is contrary to his holy nature. Romans fifteen seven says, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. We need to realize that we are just as much of a sinner as anyone else who seems to have gone astray. Amen? Just as Christ has accepted us, we need to accept. Do we accept their sin? No, of course not. We preach the truth. Always. But we don't try to condemn and say they're no longer saved. They've lost their salvation. No one can pluck him out of the love of out of the God's hand. In Ephesians one six says, "To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the blood, beloved." Is what our righteousness and our doing right what made us accepted? No, not at all. God forbid. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The idea of eternal security just does not make sense to the person. Who is logically trying to think this out? And they say it just doesn't seem fair. Is it fair to allow Christians who went the way of the world to share in the same eternal blessings as those who followed Christ throughout their lives? Well, let me ask you something. Did we earn those blessings by being faithful? No. The biggest argument I've I've heard is that eternal security, uh, eternal security opens the door to a license to sin. If Christians think that they can do anything they want and still go to heaven, they'll do just that. And there are some that are like that, I'll agree. But just because they misunderstand the grace of God, it doesn't mean that eternal security is wrong, amen? Romans 5 verse 20 all the way through 6, chapter 6, verse 2 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the law showed us where we were wrong. And it, it, by all evidence, it looked like we were sinning a whole lot more. Because now we know what sin is by the law. But where sin abounded, grace did make much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Yes, it does open the door for, for some people that misunderstand the grace of God to continue to live the way they do. But someone who is comfortable living that way, it makes you wonder if the Holy Spirit is in their, in their heart to begin with. Amen? so there are some arguments that are given, but let's look at what the Bible says. Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 4. Just a couple of verse pages over from where you were uh, when we started. Uh, verses 4 and 5, we're going to look at that verses in just a minute. When a judge pronounces a man not guilty, that certainly does not mean that there is a change in the relationship between the judge and the defendant. In most cases, the judge doesn't really care that much about the defendant on a personal basis. In fact, ideally, there's nothing personal gained or lost by the judge's perspective. Uh, The concept of an acquittal and forgiveness are similar, but there are some important differences as well. To be acquitted of a crime is to be released from the obligation concerning any debts or liabilities for that crime. Forgiveness includes that idea, but it goes further. To forgive someone is to accept the individual back into the realm of fellowship. We just finished a series on the truth about forgiveness. And in that, we learned that forgiveness always includes reconciliation. When men and women place their trust in Christ as their Savior, they're not simply acquitted of their sin. They're forgiven. And there's a big difference. The New Testament writers understood this well, though. And to overlook the relational element would bring an unbalanced picture to forgiveness. And today I want to look at four things someone who be, who believes they can lose their salvation needs to do. <clears throat> four mental steps that can take uh, that they can take so that they can, in their own minds, have eternal security. Let's look at this. Uh, for number one, for number one, realize your adoption. Realize your adoption. Before we look at Galatians, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 16 for you. The Bible says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We just sang about that. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Paul emphasizes the relationship of adoption and a close relationship as well. Abba, the word is the Hebrew word that we would call daddy. It's a close relationship. Not just father, but a close relationship. And God desires a deep personal relationship with his children. Look now at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. And Paul here makes a connection between adoption and justification. Being declared, justification is a legal ruling. It's a declaration. It is just as if we had never sinned. And he's making a connection between justification, which we have been declared, those of us who have accepted Christ as our savior, we have been declared justified. We are as if we had never sinned. But he goes further than that. He says it's more than that. It is adoption. In fact, it was not justification was not the goal. It was the means to the goal. The goal was a relationship made available through adoption. He says here, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of his sons. That word, that connects it and says, that was the purpose. This is why he redeemed us. This is why we were justified, so that we would receive the adoptions of sons. That's God's whole point right there. Being declared not guilty was simply a necessary step in that direction. Amen? Realize we are adopted in the first place. That's the first step towards having eternal security in your mind. The next thing that we need to do is, number two, get away from the courtroom. Get away from the courtroom. Far too many Christians view God as a stern judge ready to accuse and condemn. He is a judge, don't get me wrong. Uh, the other, spect- uh, other side of this, that where the pendulum swings, is that God is only love and never condemns. See, there's a balance between both of those truths. Both are true. Well, that he is love, I mean, and that he is justice, that he is just. There's a balance between the two. But many people that never get out of the courtroom, never realize that he's more than just a judge. He is also our father. For some reason, many Christians never get out of the courtroom and get into the family room. God is always a judge and never never a father, never Abba to them. So many Christians live in fear, just waiting for that gavel to strike. But the truth is, God, the judge, has already declared the verdict. Amen? The verdict has already been declared. Not guilty, Jesus said. Jesus said in John 5, 24, excuse me, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on, me, on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is past. past tense, already happened, is passed from death unto life. You will never be judged for your sins because your sins are forgiven. Amen? It's so settled in the mind of God that at the moment of your salvation, knowing full well all the sins that you would ever commit, God adopted you into his family. God became your father, and you became his child. Again, adopting us into the family is not just a courtesy. It was the goal from the beginning. Amen? Boy, I don't know why. If y'all can't say amen to that, I don't know what's going on. Amen? That was the goal from the beginning. Amen? Amen. That's good. (laughs) Not just from our beginning, not just from the beginning that we got saved. Not just from the beginning from when we were born. No, it was God's goal from the beginning of time. As Ephesians makes very clear. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. He chose us to be his child before the foundation of time. He has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. What What does that mean? Look at that again. According to the good pleasure of his will. What does that mean? He wanted you. He chose you. He wants to be your father. God chose to adopt you as his child before the foundation of the world. Why? For one reason and one reason over only. He wanted to. I've heard of many unwanted pregnancies. I've never yet today, to today, heard of an unwanted adoption. Amen. Couples choose to adopt a specific child. God adopted you for the same reason he wanted you. So step one, realize the truth of your adoption. You are adopted into the family of God. You are the child of God. Step two, get out of the courtroom and into the family room. He's your father. He's your Abba. Step three, realize that we are always his. We are always his. Paul's reliance on the concept of adoption is a strong argument for eternal security. To lose one's salvation, one would have to be unadopted. And could you ever really put your tro- total trust in the Heavenly Father that may adopt you at some point? Could you really trust him completely? And people holding to a view that allows for a person to be unadopted have to confront Another major theological hurdle. Why would God choose before the foundation of the world to adopt someone he knew, if he's all-knowing, he's all-knowing, that he knew would eventually have to unadopt? Why would he do that? To believe that we can be unadopted is to believe that man is able to thwart the predestinated will of God. I have more power than God does. You understand what I'm saying? If there are certain sins that force God to unadopt his children, our salvation is contingent on our our faith and our willingness not to commit particular sins. So in truth, we would actually be saved by faith and works. Furthermore, it means Christ did not take every sin with him to the cross. There are some that are not paid for. As you can see, the very foundation of Christianity begins to crumble once we begin tampering with eternal security of the believer. There's no scriptural support of the notion that the adoption process can be reversed. None. Romans 14.8 says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. Jesus gave us a few wonderful illustrations to show us how much God's love, how much God loves us, and he wants to keep us and will keep us. I'm looking at those examples as we look at step number four. Realize that we are anxiously chased. Number four, realize that we are anxiously chased. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. I want you to see these examples with me luke chapter 15. as you're turning there i'll set this up a little bit the pharisees of jesus's day did not believe in eternal security either they believed you needed to follow the law in order to be accepted they lived their life with the threat of being rejected on one occasion jesus was being swamped by tax collectors and sinners His interactions with them really got to the Pharisees. They couldn't figure out how a teacher who claimed to be from God could fellowship with those whom they believed God hated. They began to complain one to another. In verse number 2, they said, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, sharing a meal with a sign of acceptance and fellowship. And Jesus knew their thoughts and took the opportunity to draw their attention to the error of their thoughts through parables. In each parable, something was lost, something precious. In each parable, the owner put aside everything else and focused attention on finding it. In the first parable, in verses 4 through 6, the parable of a man who lost a sheep. When he realized it was gone, he left the ninety and nine, left the rest of his flock and searched over the mountains and into the valleys everywhere, searching until he found the sheep. Jesus applied this parable in verse number seven. He says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. The point of the parable is clear, and it flew right past the Pharisees, and their twisted thinking. God the shepherd was concerned about the sinner more than he was the righteous who stayed in the fold. Before they had time to think about it too much or really figure it out, Jesus presented the second scenario in verse 8. He says, Either that woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it. And when she hath found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. A woman lost a valuable coin, and she put aside all of her other chores until she found it. Even at risk of appearing irresponsible, she searched until she found her treasure. Again, Christ applied the parable to the God the Father, And his attitude towards sinners. In spite of what the religious leaders thought and taught, God's concern at the time was not the righteous, but the unrighteous. He wanted to seek them. The Pharisees had no comprehension of God's true view of sinners, really. They were so caught up in their own fake righteousness that they had come to believe that their good works were actually good enough. And to drive the point home even farther, Christ gave one more vivid illustration in verse 11. He said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. With those words right there, Jesus had their undivided attention, I imagine. No son with any respect at all for his father would demand his share of an inheritance while his father was still living. That was unthinkable. Verse 13, he says, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Not only did he demand his share from his father before the death of his father, but the younger son left town with it. He had no concern for his father's welfare. He had no concern for the family as a whole. He was concerned only about himself. No doubt the listeners were rehearsing in their minds what they thought that brat deserved. How dare he? He should be stoned. But the story took a surprising turn, doesn't it? Verse 14, he says, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent, sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave it unto him. The crowd must have probably become nauseous, as Jesus described the conditions of the boy now. The Pharisees wouldn't even come near swine, much less feed them. The young man had hopelessly ceremonially unclean. He would never be clean enough to enter the temple and offer sacrifices, sure. To eat with pigs, on top of it all, this is just over the edge. But many standing there that day should have been able to relate to the story of the prodigal son. They had abandoned their own heavenly father for their own rules. Abandoned what he taught and focused upon themselves They were in situations that caused them to be alienated from the religious community as well. Verse 17, he continued, and he says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. We'll stop there for just a minute. I'm sure everyone had an opinion of what the father would say or do to the boy when he began his speech. The one who knew the father better than anyone was going to end the story quite differently than anyone else around had thought. Verse 20 again, he says, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, the fa- his father saw him and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. Pharisees must have cringed at the thought of embracing someone that had just spent their time feeding swine. But then Jesus added, verse 21, And the son said unto his father, Father, uh, unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son, But the father said unto the servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Culturally speaking, what Jesus described in this parable was the worst case scenario. The boy could not have been more disrespectful, more insensitive, nor a greater embarrassment to his family. No one would have blamed the father if he had refused to allow the boy to join up as one of his hired men. He didn't deserve a second chance. Even the son recognized he had forfeited all rights to sonship. His father, however, did not see it that way. Once a son, always a son. He never once said, he's no longer my son. He said, get the fatted calf, get all this thing for my son. The father saw him from a distance. His father. The relationship was never brought into account. His father's emotion when he saw him was not anger or disappointment. It was compassion. This young man was his son. He said, this my son was dead and is alive again. Not this my son, this was my son and now he's my son again. There's no hint that the relationship was broken. Only the fellowship. He was lost, literally lost. He didn't know where he was. If ever there was a son that deserved to be disowned, it was this one, especially in the culture in which they lived. Yet the father is not portrayed as battling in his heart over what to do with him. Tell me, what good works maintained the relationship between the father and the son in the parable? He he left as a son. Otherwise, he would have received no inheritance. He returned as a son. Without a word, the father ran to him, embraced him, and restored him with the physical and visible signs of sonship. What maintained the son's relationship with the father? He wasn't acting like a son. He he didn't manifest any of the signs of sonship. He didn't perform any good works. And yet his relationship with his father never changed. He loved the son because he was a son. The shepherd didn't kick the wandering sheep out of the flock. The woman didn't just forget about her lost coin. The father didn't disown his rebellious son. God is not looking for people he can throw out of the family, he's looking for people who are willing to be included. Once they are included, he continually looks after them through all their ups and downs, and when they go away, he seeks after them. He's the good shepherd. He's the compassionate father. He is love. Acting like God's child didn't get you into the family. Not acting like one won't get you tossed out. Salvation is forever. But were there consequences? Yes. Yes, there was. While he was separated from the Father, did he enjoy fellowship or the perks that came with it? No. Instead, he lived in squalor. He was abandoned by all of his friends. His inheritance was wasted. He was alone until he came back to the Father. Walking away from God in the Bible does not make you any less a child of God. That's not in your power. You don't have the ability to make that true. But because we are his children, we ought to act like it. It's shameful not to act like the child of the king. It's shameful. The prodigal son was the bad guy of the story because he didn't do what was expected of him as a son of a loving father. When we backslide, when we're not doing right because we're not doing what is expected of the child of the king, it's shameful. No sin will change our relationship status with God, though but it will change our fellowship. If one of my children disobey me or disrespect me, then turn around and ask for something. They're not going to get it. Amen? But obedience brings blessings. I don't know about you, but I need all the blessings I can get. God says whom he loves, He chastens. I don't go around chastening other people's children. I don't see somebody acting up along the street and get after them and bring my belt. (laughs) I don't do that. Why? Because they're not my child. Right? But I will get after my child. I will chasten them. Why? Because I love them. And I want them to to be a profitable part of society. Whom I love, I will chasten. Don't think that just because we have eternal security in our relationship that there will be no consequences if we don't follow what God wants us to do. Amen? But no, eternal security is not something we are involved with. We'll see more of this as we study this idea. But we are secure in him. Not by our own works. Not by this church building. Not by our attendance role. Not by how much we read the Bible. Not even how much we obey the Bible. We are eternally secure by him. And he has sealed us by his Holy Spirit. We're going to look more at this as weeks come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless us today. Father, may we all leave this day with a realization that we are your child. We are secure in you. Help us to see and realize what this adoption means. Yes, you are the judge. Yes, you are just. But all of our sins have been paid for and we have been declared justified by the judge who now has adopted us as his child and craves for and wants that relationship with him and that fellowship with him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that realization in our hearts. When we realize how much you love us and how much you want to spend time with us and how much you want to help us, Father, it'll encourage us to stay on the right path. Help us to view you as you really are. I pray that you would bless us now as we go into this time of invitation. Lord, if there's anybody here that does not know you as your Savior, if there's anyone here that does not know 100% sure that if they died today that they would go to heaven, Lord, may they realize they are a sinner. There is a penalty for that sin. But you have loved us even though we're sinners. In that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we will now turn to you and do as your word says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. If we'll just confess, Lord, I've sinned. I've gone away from you. Salvation come into our hearts. We'll call upon you. You will accept us. You will forgive us. You will adopt us. If there's anybody here that does not know that for sure, may they pray right now, Lord, save me. Pray that you would help us now as we spend this rest of this day. Be with us during this invitation time, I pray. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen let's all stand together and let's sing a verse of invitation as we sing